Well, I am Jeremy. I'm the youth minister here, and um, I want to tell you a story that I read, a story of this older couple who uh, is at a restaurant, and they're eating together, and the wife notices that there's another couple not too far from them in a booth that's pretty close by, about their same age, and they're sitting on the same side of the booth, and the husband has his arm around his wife, and and uh, he's, he's whispering things to her, and she's giggling, and he kisses her on the cheek, and she blushes a little bit, and it's just this really sweet picture, and the first wife looks to her husband, and she says, look at that couple over there. They're sitting next to each other, and he's got his arm around her, and, it, and, he's, and he's kissing her, and, and she's, she's laughing, and she's giggling. Why don't you do anything like that? And the husband slowly looks up from his salad, and he looks over at the table, and he says, honey, I don't even know that woman. I apologize. That's a bad joke. It'll get better from here, I promise. Um, so a couple weeks ago, Eric asked me if I'd be interested in preaching, and I said, yes, absolutely, I would love to. And he said, um, you know, I, I, well, I asked him, I was like, what do you want me to preach on? I know we're coming out of this series on Titus, and I wasn't sure what we were going to be heading into. And he said, you can preach on whatever you want, but there are two rules. I said, okay. He said, uh, you got to use the Bible, and you got to preach about Jesus. I was like, fine. I guess I can handle that. Not too bad there. But um, I, I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but, but I mean, that's, that's, that's tough. Like you can preach on whatever you want. There's a lot of options out there. I'm glad he puts uh, faith in me. I'm glad he trusts me. But, but that's, that's a little difficult. And I even asked my student leadership team, I texted them and I was like, hey, what do you guys think I should preach on? And uh, uh, the very first response was, man, that's really hard. There's a lot of options. And I said, I know. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I thought it would be appropriate, though, if I talked about something that God has put on my heart here recently, something that um, I think is relevant to the season that we're in and the seasons that we're heading into. And so if you notice in your bulletin, um, or if you have the Oakwood app, you'll see that today's sermon is titled, Content in Christ. We're talking about contentment, which I think as humans, but especially as Americans in our Western world, we don't do very well with contentment, right? We're not content. We're just not content people. Um, and so I want to talk about that this morning by describing three different places, three different cities, all of which I think are uh, at least somewhat familiar to you. Um, and I want to talk about what life was like, what life is like, and what life will be like using these cities. And so my goal for today is to challenge us, uh, myself included, in how we view contentment, how we practice and how we live out contentment in our lives the way that God wants us to. And so the first city that I'm going to describe is the ancient city of Rome. Okay, I want to paint a picture for you here so that you get a good view and a good idea of what Rome was really like. 2,000 years ago, um, it was nicknamed the Eternal City because the people who lived there believed that this city would never be conquered. They believed that this city would never be destroyed. And their leader at the time, Caesar Augustus, believed that he was the son of God. And the people that he was in charge of, they believed that he was the son of God as well. And so he believed and they believed that he would rise from the dead and would live forever. And so they, he had them build him an opulent palace up on a hill overlooking his eternal city. And they spent many decades building structures to honor him, some of which still exist today. 
Statements like, Curios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, and for the glory of Rome. These were statements that were inscribed on buildings and printed on the money that they used. And these statements were chanted during these citywide worship celebrations of the Caesar. For the upper 1% of Rome, life was very, very good. The wealthy consumed 25 million gallons of wine every year in this city. They ate so much food that it was a common practice to, and you gotta, I gotta apologize, okay, but this is just part of it, to vomit after they ate their meals so that they would make room so that they could eat more at these big opulent parties that they were participating in. They even had these places called vomitoriums. It's not what you think, though. Unfortunate name, vomitoriums did exist, and over the course of history, it was concluded that that's what they were used for, places where people could go and do this. That's not what they were used for. Vomitoriums were actually uh, the secret pathways behind theaters and, and places like that so that the actors and musicians could get out pretty quickly and stuff. But it was just common practice. These, this is something that they actually did. They would do this after they ate. Um, and so this just got, you know, again, unfortunate name for something, but it, 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 over the course of history, was built up to that. But ultimately, indulgence uh, was more than just a mindset for these people. It was a way of life for the people in the ancient city of Rome. And because of the buildings, the many buildings uh, built 2,000 years ago that still stand today, and because the Roman Empire was one of the largest and one of the longest-lasting empires to ever exist here on earth, I think we tend to have this romanticized view of what Rome was actually like. In reality, Rome, for most people who lived there, was not very good. It was less than great, for sure. So I'm going to illustrate that for you a little bit this morning. First off, I want you to imagine being in Manhattan. New York City, you guys are familiar. It's downtown New York City. It is the most cramped piece of land in the United States. It has a population density of 114 people per acre. Okay? So take your yard and add 114 people to it, and that is uh, Manhattan. You have Manhattan, New York City. Now, shift over a little bit and think of Manila in the Philippines. It is the most cramped area of land, obviously not in our country, but in the entire world. And it has a population density of 187 people per acre. So take your yard that already has 114 people in it and add like another 70 and you have Manila. Now I want you to imagine a population density of over 300 people per acre and you have the ancient city of Rome. And that number doesn't include all of the livestock. You probably remember from school that in the ancient world, 2,000 years ago, people lived in very close proximity with their farm animals, right? And the tallest residential facilities in Rome at the time were no more than about five stories high. And so people and animals were literally living on top of each other in what would probably be like cubicles, pretty small spaces. You add to that the smoke from the fires that they used to cook food with and uh, the lack of indoor plumbing, few baths that anybody took, and you get streets covered in mud and manure. There's bugs and rodents and no sanitation, really, and that led to health issues and diseases and plagues and infections 
and viruses and rashes, and I could go on, but I won't. A third, 30% of all babies died at birth in the ancient city of Rome. Those that did live, though, were often abandoned on the streets because their parents didn't have a way to take care of them. One recent archaeological dig found the bones of over 100 newborn babies clogging the sewer pipes of this ancient city. Babies and and young kids were thrown out on a daily basis like trash. And it's because children were not seen as or really classified as people. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for children or child is the word technon. And part of that definition is just non-speaking. And that's how they viewed them. That's how they viewed kids. They're non-speaking. They don't matter to us. Plato, the Greek philosopher, said children are nothing more than a mob of motley appetites, pains, and pleasures. Pliny, a first century Roman author, said none among the animals are so prone to tears like children are. And Plutarch, another Greek philosopher, said newborn babies are more like a plant than a human being. That was the view of the most innocent in that city. So imagine our world, our society, without the joy of children, and you have the ancient city of Rome. Now, just above children on the social ladder were slaves. One-third of all of Rome's population had a tattoo or a brand on their forehead signifying that they were a slave, that they belonged to somebody else. Uh, And this was adults and it was children. If you were an attractive young boy or girl, you were sold into sex slavery often, and then they would be killed when they were no longer of use to their owner. The stories are, are unbelievable. Uh, I read a story of about 20,000 20, 20, slaves that died in one week because their owner worked them to death in the mines, didn't feed them, didn't give them water, all because he knew he could just get more. Uh, I read about a, a wealthy dad who took his son and some of the buddies, his buddies to an arena Uh, as a birthday gift for his son and he purchased several dozen slaves and he ordered them to reenact famous battles from their history and kill one another in front of these little boys. Uh, It wasn't uncommon for families to start their day by going and watching the execution of slaves. Socrates, um, famous, he, he said the phrase, know thyself. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, Contrary to popular opinion, This wasn't a statement of self-discovery. Essentially what he was saying in this arrogant announcement was, know your place in the pecking order. And so you had children, and then you had slaves, and just above them was women. Like slaves, women were property in the ancient times. They had no rights, uh, really were nothing more than objects to satisfy the appetites of drunk men. I could go into lots of stories. Believe me, there are a lot of them, and they are horrible. But you add to all of that the crime that existed. Bandits and thieves were everywhere. Nobody wanted to live in the countryside because it was really bad. So that's why they fled to the cities to live, where it was almost equally as bad. You add to that all the natural disasters, earthquakes, fires, floods, famines, believe it or not, all of which were more common then than they are today. You add to that the worship of gods, whether real or not, that were so cruel, so distant, and so angry, and so demanding of their followers. All of that 
And somehow, chained to this pillar, this picture you're going to see, in the Mamertine prison in Rome, Paul was able to write these words in a letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. I have learned, in whatever situation I am in, to be content. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. And I read that, I don't know, a few dozen times this week. And every time I ask the question, how? How? How could Paul be content after all that he'd gone through And while in prison, in this city of Rome, how could Paul be content in a city that assaulted women and children like it did? Like it it was nothing, consistently. They treated slaves worse than animals. How could Paul, who had been beaten with sticks, flogged with a cat of nine tails, stoned on multiple occasions by the Romans, how can he say, I'm content? How's it possible? Well, he tells us in the very next line, one that I'm sure you're familiar with, Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. One word answer, Jesus. Paul could be content because he kept his eyes on Jesus. Now, what is it about Jesus? I mean, he was born into the Roman empire, right? And people might think that he'd just fall in line with the typical Roman behavior and and that way of life, but he didn't, right? He didn't. That's not who God is. He was very different. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them for my kingdom. My empire belongs to them. So he elevated children. He also elevated the value of women, You might remember this story. One day Jesus is at a well and he has a conversation with a woman. He essentially tells her, hey, you don't have to climb from bed to bed finding your identity in men. You can find your value and your identity in me. He elevated the value of women. Jesus healed the sick. He raised people from the dead. He didn't live in a fancy palace on a hill. He didn't wear purple robes like Caesar did. He didn't have an army. He didn't have a a system to collect taxes. He didn't pillage and plunder neighboring countries to enslave people. Instead, Jesus told his followers, love your neighbor and your enemies. And so chained to this pillar in a Roman prison, Paul says, I have joy in my life. I, I have contentment in my life because I have Jesus in my life. And what's cool is Paul wasn't alone in that. There were 30,000 Christians living in Rome at the time, and they started providing proper burial for slaves who were killed. If nobody wanted them, they, the Christians would go and take the bodies of the slaves and give them a proper burial to restore dignity to them, to, to the slaves. The slaves in the Roman Empire couldn't get enough of Jesus because of how they were being treated by these Christians. And so they're flooding to the church in huge numbers. And women... Women were elevated in the church, not just socially, but they were given leadership roles. They taught and they prayed in the first church. They were messengers of the good news of Jesus, and they were missionaries 
to other regions and other nations. And so women were flocking to the church in record numbers. They just couldn't get enough of Jesus. Abandoned children were rescued and placed in loving Christian homes. Hospitals were built and the sick were cared for by Christians. And it was the Christians who stayed faithful to one husband and one wife. And they elevated the status and the virtue of virginity and and sexual fidelity. And as a result of, of all of these things that we've talked about, you can imagine that, and it's, this is a historical fact, Christians' life expectancy was way higher than anybody else's in the empire. All because of Jesus. Paul wrote a, a summation sentence uh, of this in Galatians 3.28. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no Male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Everybody gets elevated. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody gets loved and cared for. Jesus changed an entire city. A city that was almost completely void of love. Rome. That's city number one. City number two is one that I think you're probably a little more familiar with. For the sake of our discussion, let's say that we all live in Enid, Oklahoma. Home of over 51,000 people. As citizens of this fine city, we have access to education and health care. We have police and firemen that keep us safe. We all have safe drinking water. We have 24 hours a day electricity. I don't know about your house, but a truck comes to my house and picks up my trash. That's wild. The average temperature in Enid 70 degrees. That's 30 degrees in the winter and 110 in the summer. (laughs) But the average is 70. Do the math. It checks out, okay? Average income, $27,600 a person. Average age of death, 80 years old. And our population density, four people per acre. I like that. That's a lot better. Now, I don't think I'm going to hurt anybody's feelings when I say this next part, but Enid isn't necessarily the most beautiful area of this country. But then I get pictures like this sent to me by Carminia, who is our bookkeeper. She was on her way to work, and she took this picture. And I think, man, that's not too bad. That is not too bad. That's pretty pretty beautiful right there. I've been to basketball games. I've been to volleyball games. I've been to football games around here. And it's amazing. Not one person tried to kill somebody else during those games. In fact, they shook hands at the end of the game. It's pretty awesome, right? It amazes me that I could stand up here and I could preach this message without the fear of somebody trying to arrest me or trying to kill me. Now, the message isn't over yet, and I understand that, but (laughs) Enid is very different than ancient Rome, isn't it? Um, If I was honest with you this morning, I would tell you that... um, This message wasn't necessarily one of the easiest ones for me to write, and you can ask my wife about this, but I struggle with contentment. I do. I struggle with that. Um, Even though I don't live in ancient Rome, I get to live in Enid, Oklahoma. I still struggle with contentment, with just being happy with what God has given me. Um, I, I, I tend to want more. I get something that's awesome, or I get to experience something, and I want more. I want something better. Um, and, and so for me, the part of these verses that Paul writes that sticks out to me most is he says, I have learned to be content. 
I know I can't say that yet. If I were to write that sentence, I would have to change the tense and say, I am learning to be content. And that's not the most fun thing to admit to a big group of people, but I know what it is. I know what steals my contentment, and it's complaining. When I complain, I rob my heart of the gift of being content. So this week, I issued a challenge to myself. I didn't tell anybody else. I didn't tell my wife. I just thought this in my head. I thought at the beginning of this week, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to vow to not complain. I'm going to try real hard to not complain. And let me tell you, uh, we started off the week, okay, this is day one. We started off the week with a daughter who got strep and head lice, okay? That was day one. So, so I didn't do great, okay? I'm just being honest with you guys. I started off pretty bad. It was, it was a little rough. And, uh, and I didn't feel great this week either leading up to today. And there's just a lot that is going on. And, and again, I, I wasn't perfect at it. But I wanted to make a conscious effort not to complain. I don't want to complain about the traffic out on Garriott. I don't want to complain about the four million potholes on Randolph. <laughs> I don't want to complain about the fact that Alan and I got demolished in pickleball on Tuesday night. It was embarrassing. I'm not going to complain about all the things I don't like about my physical appearance. I'm not going to complain about having to wait for food at a restaurant or wait for the water in my shower to get hot. I'm not going to complain about the cost of gas or groceries. I'm not going to complain about the political partisanship that's destroying our country. I'm not going to complain about all that I don't have and all that I wish that I could afford. Uh, we're in this season now heading into Thanksgiving and then into Christmas where I think this is hardest for people, which is ironic. We're going into a time that is dedicated to giving thanks for being thankful for what we have and then into a, a time that's supposedly about peace and celebration and instead we make it about greed and we make it about discontentment. And I think all of us in this room, we have way more to celebrate than to complain about. And I know that's easier said than, than done. The reality for a lot of you in this room is that life, life has been difficult. Okay, there's, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of things that have been going on. And so for me to sit up here and say, oh, you have way more to celebrate than to complain about, might feel like a slap in the face. And I don't mean it. I don't mean that, to feel like that. But I stand by this. For myself especially, I think I have way more to celebrate than to complain about. The time in history that we live, the place we live that, that I just described, the things that God has blessed us with and continues to bless us with on a, on a daily basis, I think we have it pretty good. Based on that, I think one of the ungratefulest words in the human language is the word ungrateful pretty gross. And I think what makes it so dangerous is that oftentimes when we struggle with it, we don't see it. We don't necessarily recognize it. Like you, you can look in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in pain. Or yeah, I've got a lot of joy right now. But you don't always see the ingratitude. That's a pretty difficult symptom to detect, especially this time of year. I think we have so much to be grateful for. 
And I think we'd all do well to, to read and to remember what David said in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. He says this, he says, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our sins, heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. That's great. That's a great verse. Uh, I think it's interesting. G.K. Chesterton, he was a famous writer, philosopher. He said this. He said, one of the most puzzling times in an atheist's life is when he or she feels a deep sense of gratitude, but there's no one to thank. David knew who to thank. I think we do too. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise his holy name. Uh, there's something that I'm, I'm learning right now about gratitude. And it's that the, the more that I think I deserve, the less I'm grateful for. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But the more I think I deserve, the less I'm grateful for. And that leads to another ugly word in the English language, which is entitlement. There's an ever-growing sense of entitlement in our country. And I think that's because there's an ever-growing sense of ingratitude. We are not grateful. And so we feel like we deserve more. We deserve better. Uh, I read a story this past week of a psychic in Philadelphia who sued Temple University Hospital. Uh, she got a CAT scan, and the, the scan caused her to lose her psychic abilities. <laughs> and it hurt her business. She said, I can't foresee the future anymore. And the jury awarded her $980,000. <laughs> and I read that. And I thought, logically, shouldn't she have seen this coming? <laughs> right? Common sense has been replaced with a sense of entitlement. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And again, this is me, maybe you too, the more I think I deserve, the less I will be grateful for. And so we have a choice to be ungrateful and to complain and to feel entitled or to be grateful, celebrate, and to be content. We don't have to sit in a dingy, dark jail cell and be a part of culture like Paul was in the ancient city of Rome. He had a lot to complain about and he chose not to. We're in Enid, Oklahoma. In the 21st century, and honestly, I don't think we have that much to complain about. And here's why Paul knew that Rome wasn't really his home. And I think we tend to forget that this isn't our home either. The Bible calls our third city heaven, and it really is the eternal city. Paul reminds us that we are citizens of that city. Its streets aren't made of mud or manure or pavement. Can't even fathom this. They're made of gold. There's a river that runs through the center of the city, and it's lined with trees that provide food and healing for every nation under the sun, Revelation tells us. 
which means the kitchens in heaven will never lack anything. No one's ever going to be thirsty. No one's ever going to be hungry. Hospitals will be empty and out of business because disease and death no longer exist. Racism, sexism, terrorism, alcoholism, every other ism is going to be eradicated forever. War will no longer threaten anyone. No more sirens, no more security checkpoints. John tells us in in Revelation that the gates of the city will never need to be closed to keep out evil because there will be no more evil. And best of all, God will rule over that city completely. Not a ruthless dictator, but a loving, the loving creator of the universe, our Father. Because that's the reward for contentment in Christ. Paul, chained to that pillar, having endured what he did, could be content because of the reward promised by God. We're a a week and a half from Thanksgiving, six weeks until Christmas, and I encourage you, be content. Practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. Paul says in that same letter, just a few verses before, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we practice gratitude... If we show thanksgiving, God says he will give us a peace that is, that is beyond anything we can understand. We will find contentment. We need to think correctly. The very next verse, Philippians 4, 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things we can change our mindset, if we can think correctly while we're practicing gratitude, we will find contentment. Be satisfied with what God has given you. This is what Paul's talking about. He said, hey, I've had it all and I've had nothing. And I know where it all comes from. It all comes from God. And I can be satisfied with that. I can be content because I know God has it under control. We need to let Jesus be our strength. Paul says, I was able to do all of this. I was able to find gratitude. I'm thinking correctly, and I can be satisfied because of Jesus. It's only because of him. We can't do it on our own. You won't be able to do it on your own. But you can find your strength in Jesus. Be content. Not because of your circumstances or your situations. Not because of what you own or or how much you make or what you've accomplished. Be content because of Jesus.